Welcome, you're listening to a members-only broadcast brought to you by Barnabas Foundation, your trusted ministry partner for planned giving. And here's your host, Kurt Knoll, Director of Member Relations. This podcast comes to you from our September 2019 Donor Engagement Seminar. In the first session, Mick Uclea shared with us his research on the generations and how you can use that to develop a deeper relationship with your supporters. Let me tell you a little bit about Mick. Mick's the founder and president of Leadership Track. He empowers leaders to optimize their talent and equips them to excel in their professional and personal life. He is an author and speaker and generational strategist. He's a co-author of Managing the Millennials, Discovering the Core Competencies for Managing Today's Workforce, which is used in corporate training and business schools. He's also the co-founder of the Euclea Center for Ethical Leadership at California State University in Long Beach, which promotes ethics across curriculum. Mick is an adjunct professor also at Concordia University. He serves on quite a few boards, and one interesting fact, he's the chairman of the Board of Trustees for the Astronauts Memorial Foundation, which oversees the Center of Space Education at the Kennedy Space Center. It's kind of a cool thing. He's also a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, and there's a bunch of good reform folks in here. I'm sure we won't hold that against him. And he was a founder and pastor of Suncoast Sun Grace Church in California as well. Correct, Mick? Seacoast. Seacoast. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Brad. Yes, my name gets pronounced so many different ways, it's, it's quite unusual. Yuleki, uh, Euclidjay, uh, even been called ukulele. Please don't call me that. It's not a Polynesian name, it's a Polish name. I'm half Polish, half Irish. The Venerovskis and Eucleas and the Gibsons and the Kellys, and I became a Mick. Uh, that's what happens when you marry into that kind of people. My wife's Armenian, so our kids are really uh, mixed up. They, they are all, my son is pasty blonde and white like me, and my daughter has brown skin with dark hair and brown eyes. And, so we have a lot of fun with the whole thing. None of them are adopted, they're our kids. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today because I really believe in what the Barnabas Foundation is all about and how they serve people. And I'm a firm believer that people do not get together to accomplish less. We get together to accomplish more. And so it's my privilege today to talk about this, the generational uh, diversity because we've talked for years about gender diversity and and uh, ethnic diversity, but today now we're really talking about a lot everywhere about generational diversity because of the multiple, multiple uh, generations in the workforce. But to understand a particular generation, and my mom happens to be 93, still going strong, still messing around trying to do some income tax for people. Uh, I have all of her apps on my phone because she can't use apps. That's something she doesn't want to do. <clears throat> But uh, I'm keeping my eye on her now because she's beginning to not do that as well as she used to. But to really understand a particular generation, I think it's important to understand not only the differences between the generations, and there's a reason for that, but also the similarities. And to do that, you really need to understand the intrinsic values that drive those behaviors. And please know that when we talk about generations, uh, people do this like, you know, what's your sign, like it's astrology. Oh, I'm a millennial. Oh, I'm a. These are not cookie cutter things. These are general truths. Uh, for instance, you can have what I call a MIB. That's a millennial and a boomer body. That would be a guy like Richard Branson of Virgin Galactic. He's, he's a boomer, but he acts like a millennial. So it's really not about birth years as it is about behavior. 
and the intrinsic values that were formed during your formative years when those things really stick. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. We're going to also, uh, whether you like it or not, to really understand this, I'm going to tap into the science of generational cohort theory just a bit so you begin to see that this is a science. It's not something that somebody made up because so much that's written about generation today is anecdotal. I like to start off with this because I think it's cute. Good old Lucy, she's that great <clears throat> you know, counselor, that great psychologist to Charlie Brown, and she says, discouraged again, hey, Charlie Brown. You know what your trouble is? The whole trouble with you is that you're you. Well, what in the world am I supposed to do about that? She says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the trouble. And so much of what's been talked about with generations today are people pointing out the problems or the trouble or the disparities or these young people they, they text, and they don't use commas, and what do they know, and all these kinds of things that really don't matter. Uh, I'm going to show you a little slide. It's a commercial, but it sort of picks up on what we're talking about. Hey, newbie. When I was your age, we didn't have a fancy biz hub to scan stuff. We had to scan it ourselves with a scanner. You were lucky. We wanted snazzy color like this. We sent out for it. Well, we couldn't just send things from a biz hub. We faxed him on slimy fax paper. It's the elder. He who speaks of floppy disks. You're all soft. Advanced solutions for today's workflow. Count on Konica Minolta. Now, why is that funny? Because it's true. It's a sociological true. Each generation thinks the next one was a little softer than the, the one that they are in. By the way, nothing's changed. It's, it's amazing how you can see this all over the place. Uh, the narcissistic generation, the me-me generation, talking about millennials. But guess what? You go back into, into the 70s, and we did the same thing with Gen X. They were the me-me generation. And you can go back to the boomers, my group, and it's, listen to what this guy said. He said, Millennial, he said, even as I knew the phrase to make a living could have absolutely no meaning to these children, of the affluent society, he's talking about my generation, uh, just putting this down. And we can go back even further. Socrates would put down youth, and Hesiod, listen to what Hesiod said. They only care about frivolous things. When I was a boy, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders, but the present youth are exceedingly impatient of restraint. Hesiod, 700 BC. So nothing's ever changed, that's not new. Let me tell you what's new. What's not new is complaining about younger generations. What's new are the multitude of sources and the multiplicity of platforms on which to do the complaining. And it happens, this is what happens. For instance, uh, if you Googled, millennials are lazy, entitled, and afraid. You would get 16 million hits. So it's just massive. It's exploded with our natural bent to complain about the next generation, it has exploded off the charts. It's exponential now that we can talk about the next generation, and millennials have really got to, uh, they, they, need, they need some love. They need a little love. I want to talk about something that I think is very important. We talk about emotional intelligence, we talk about cognitive intelligence, IQ, emotional intelligence, EQ. I like to talk about GQ, generational intelligence. I made that up because I thought it sounded kind of cool, become a GQ organization, generational intelligence, but what does it really mean? It's very important when we think about it. 
Generational intelligence, what is it? Here's the way it's defined. The ability to understand the similarities, the differences, and the expectations of each generational cohort. You can't do that when we put negative labels on their foreheads. You don't get to know people relationally that way. We see them as other, and then we get stereotypes, and then we build on those stereotypes with our biases, and we confirm it with confirmation bias, and then sure enough, they are lazy, entitled, or this, or the older generation, they are sort of out of it, they don't want to use uh, you know, they don't want to throw anything away, they don't want to borrow money, and so we vilify everyone. A little further here, it's all about tapping into the power of multiple generations to develop insights into all kinds of areas, and you could add to this one. Organizational health, <clears throat> leadership, marketing, products and services, philanthropy, how do the young people think about philanthropy? How does it differ? How is it similar to the way the older people think about philanthropy? Volunteerism. It's a focus on the benefits of an age-diverse workforce or organization or culture coming together to help and to see the strength that each one has so that we can better serve one another. I call it synergistic decision-making. If I have people with different ideas and backgrounds on a team with me, I'm going to be a lot better at making decisions because there's a lot of different ways to come at something that I didn't think about. So really, our Let's take millennials, for instance. Are they entitled? Or are they simply more entrepreneurial? And we look at that and go, well, who do they think they are? I want to build a business. I had to wait. Are they lazy? Or is it simply productivity redefined? Here, do 200 copies for me here. Why? Well, they're lazy. They didn't want to do 200 copies when probably they thought there might be a better way to do it. Uh, are they disloyal or are they seeking purpose? Therefore, they want to serve an organization that really is doing something significant. Are they anti-authority? Or is it respect redefined? Or you're not respected because of your age, you're respected because of your relevance. As that's what's going on. What about the expectations? Do they know your expectations as a different generation or uh, do you know theirs? And do they know yours? I think that's very important. So understanding the generations. <clears throat> Let's get into this a little bit. Uh, appreciate the unique characteristics of each generation. That's what we want to do <clears throat> versus perpetuating stereotypes of the generations. We want to focus on the strengths and also see the similarities, but also the differences. And I think that's important. Let me give you an overview. <clears throat> By the way, you can fit yourself in here somewhere. And again, this is not a cookie cutter thing. Generally speaking, these things are true. We say seatbelts save lives, right? But I can show you some cases if you're in the insurance business where it's actually caused a death. But it's still a good idea to wear seatbelts because generally speaking, seatbelts save lives. So this again is uh, not just a total exact science. The silence or the builders, my mom's in that generation. They're uh, 74 years of age to 93. She's 93. She's right there at the top of the rung, still going strong. Uh, the next, with, with the builders' generation, 1926 to 1945, that's the one that the gentleman was talking about from uh, at Lubbock on the uh, video that you saw a little earlier, that particular generation. 
And uh, then you have the boomer generation. They're about 73 years of age. They turned 73 this year. Uh, the youngest are probably about 55. And by the time you go to bed tonight, 10 million, 10 million boomers will have retired. By the time you go to bed, 11 million millennials will have turned 30 by the time you go to bed tonight. So the millennials, come, generation came next, X came next, 1965 to 1980. We're going to look at each one of these. The millennials, 1981 to 1996. Why do we pick that date? Because Gen Z came along in 1997, and they have never known a time when there was not an Internet to look at. Millennials have just a little, when they were younger, they didn't quite have it yet, but, uh, and also the Gen Z, for them, 9-11 is simply a memory. It was not an event that really took place in their life. So they're about <clears throat> age 22 to 9. Let's look at the older generation, the builder generation. What are some of the things that you think, and you'll know some of these things as we put them up here, that really impacted them during their formative years that really shaped their worldview and how they view things? And by the way, we call it life course history. Once your worldview is shaped during those formative years, it sort of stays with you all the way through. And I'll show you what I'm talking about here. I'll give you an example right now. My grandmother, when, at Thanksgiving, we, we used to catch her. This is after they had money. We would catch her washing the tinfoil <clears throat> and putting it away. Why? Because you throw nothing away. They were raised in that generation where you used everything. We could barely get my hands around her doorknob because there were so many rubber bands around it. You throw nothing away. In the garage, my grandfather had every coffee can known to mankind with every bent nail, nut, bolt, you name it, washer in there. You throw nothing away. Now today we call that clutter and we get rid of it. In those days, you didn't because they were raised during the Depression. So that's, and that stays with you the whole time. They had money now and they still did that. They still did that. Life course theory, it's called. The Great Depression, that was something that they went through where they had to ration everything. Roosevelt's New Deal, <clears throat> during their formative years. Uh, 1940s and 50s were their formative years. World War II, the Korean War, patriotism, band of brothers, all these kinds of things. The GI Bill, by the way, this was huge. This was the ancient day form of affirmative action because the university presidents were absolutely against these people from the country going to school. The university presidents got together and said they will ruin our university system. They'll turn it into a jungle. The opposite happened. They discovered that there was a lot of geniuses out there in the country that had not gone to school before this time. And the, per capita, the patents per capita just shot up like crazy in our country and blew every other nation away as a result of that. 49% were admitted to college in 1947, never done before. Veterans, by 1956, 8 million vets had taken advantage to further their education. This was huge. So the GI Bill, they saw education as a privilege, a privilege. The golden age of radio and silver screen, they started getting outside a little bit and hearing some things outside the world. Rise of labor unions, they were needed. <clears throat> Polio, an incurable disease. It was. Anybody ever get a polio shot growing up? Sure, you got one, I got one. We don't get them really anymore. It's starting to come around again in some other parts of the world. 
but my mother-in-law ran the home for crippled children in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And almost every kid in there was in there because of polio. It was a huge thing in those days. Polio was big. So authority for this group. Authority is very important for this age bracket, and we need to know that about them. They respect authority. They respect hard work. They respect delayed rewards. You work 30, 40 years on the job. Then you get your pension. They respect honor. That's very important to this group. Formative years again, uh, 1940s and 50s, work is a privilege. It's a privilege. Then they had some kids. <clears throat> These guys. <clears throat> Me. <laughs> I'm at the top of the rung there. <clears throat> and Baby boomers, uh, formative years, 1950s, 1970s, and you know we did things. We had the Vietnam and Cold War that impacted us deeply, because that was a very unpopular war. If you came back from that war wearing a uniform, you got spit on. Whole different deal than World War II or the Korean War. LPs. Anybody here know what an LP is? If you're under 30, anybody here under 30? What's an LP? I <laughs> know you don't know. It stands for long plane. We used to have these 45s in the long plane albums. We called them LPs. So there you go, see? You learned something. LPs and eight tracks, probably don't know what that is either. <clears throat> civil rights movement. This was big for our formative years. Everybody was on the civil rights bandwagon, big time. Credit cards, we drove our builder parents crazy because they said, don't buy on credit. And we discovered the power of leverage, where you can leverage your money. And we began to develop more, we had more plastic than Mattel has in our toy stores. We just started buying everything on credit. Women's Lib, this was huge from, uh, uh, from Steinem, Gloria Steinem marching with the bras to burn the bras with their armies of women to Helen to uh, Betty Friedan, who wrote the tomes on women's movement, to Helen Reddy, who was singing, I am woman, hear me roar. You know, it was really big. The women's lib movement was big. TV, rock and roll. I saw the Beatles in 1964. I was, I was 14, no, I was 16 at the Hollywood Bowl. When I was 18, I saw the Doors at the Redlands Bowl. I also saw the Rolling Stones at the Swing Auditorium Theater in San Bernardino, where I was from. Could see 5,000 people, 3,500 people showed up. That was all, but they sang their song Route 66, and of course San Bernardino is on that route. When they mentioned San Bernardino, the place went crazy, and of course we loved the, the Stones ever since. So rock and roll was big. <clears throat> the Kennedy and King assassination. This impacted this generation deeply. Now we have the innocence of America coming out of the 50s and 60s. That 50s that was really uh, a time of sadness in this country. Very optimistic generation. John Kennedy, James, President Kennedy said, we're going to send a man, in 1961, we're going to send a man to the moon and bring it back alive. By the end of the decade, we did it. The Gemini program, the Apollo program, it was an amazing thing. And now, of course, the shuttle program. Very optimistic generation. Sexual revolution. Then some other kids came along. <clears throat> we call these Generation X. What a name, Generation X. Persian Gulf War, some of their formative years. 
Uh, this was a more popular war. Space shuttle Challenger explosion. They became very cynical. They're saying, yeah, wait a minute, you can send a man to the moon, but you can't get a rocket off the launch pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center, and you blew it up. So they're beginning to suspect and be a little more cynical. AIDS, this was the incurable disease at this time. It was like polio before, except even worse. So during their formative years, they knew that if they got this, they would die. There was a fear that would just a subtle, slow melees of fear that ran through this generation. Corporate downsizing, they saw people getting laid off, they lack of trust of the organizations. Tripling of the divorce rate, it was amazing how that just shot through the roof. Uh, both parents working, these were latchkey kids. One of the things about Gen X, they are the sink or swim mentality. They're tough, they're resilient. Government corruption, they saw this. So a lot of cynicism, they saw Watergate. The environmental disaster, Three Mile <clears throat> Island, Chernobyl, they saw all these things. Video games, NTV, computers, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mobility and autonomy, very important for this group. These are great values for them. They love autonomy and mobility. Also balance, where's the work-life balance? We saw our parents doing these things and, uh, uh, you know, even though that's sort of a misnomer, it's never a perfect balance. It's only balanced that nanosecond when it passes each other, work and life. But in other words, balance in their lives. Technology was important. Informality, they ushered in uh, casual Fridays. That was their thing. <clears throat> Formative years, 1970s, 1980s. Then the millennials came along. 9-11 <clears throat> and terrorism, this hit them big. Now we have our own land being attacked. This was during their formative years. <clears throat> Columbine, this took the King and Kennedy assassination to a whole new level because now you have students assassinating students. So a whole different outlook on life. <clears throat> Cell phones, Facebook, iPod, iPad, Apple Watch, all these things coming into view. <clears throat> By the way, they stopped using Facebook, a lot of them now, because their mom and dads are on there. And they see their mom and dad on there, and they do something, and their mom likes it. And they go, I'm not using Facebook anymore. My mom's trolling me here. Anyhow, that's a different story. Email, instant text messaging, uh, the emphasis on safety. Thank you. By the way, this is, this is big. I mean, we grew up, we didn't have any seat belts in the cars. There were, they didn't put seat belts in cars when I grew up. We had bench seats, and I remember with my grandmother standing up in the front seat, just standing up. We'd never do that today. I'm, she's driving down the road, and I'm walking over, and I have my arm around her like this, and kiss her. She kisses me back, and, you know, go back over on this side of the bench seat, look out the window, count the telephone poles as they go by. Today, they would have arrested her for child endangerment. We, the kids, did, we didn't wear helmets. We didn't do these things. We, my sister and I on the back of my uncle's pickup truck, sitting on boxes, drinking RC colas, going around tur turns. They would never do that today. My little grandsons, they all have little helmets before they go on outside. It's amazing the emphasis now on safety. And it's not a bad thing. I'm just saying it was different. What's valuable to this group? Some of the intrinsic values are virtual social networking. We've always networked, but now it's virtual and social networking. We used to go hang out at the malls. They still do that, by the way, but it's much broader than that now. Constant feedback. Always getting constant feedback of where they are. Teamwork is very important for this group. They work in teams. They believe strongly that none of us is as smart as all of us. And that's not a bad thing. 
diversity. If they don't see diversity, they think something's wrong. We'll talk about that in just a bit. Another generation came along. <clears throat> generation Z, 1970 to 2010. This is the most diverse generation in history, even greater than the millennials. And again, I'll talk about that in a second. Technology dependent. By the way, they're not always technology savvy because there's older people that can know the technology better than them, but they are dependent on it. They need it. They can't live without it. More risk adverse, this group. Why? Because they saw the recession in 2008. So they, they've learned some things from that. 9-11 is only a memory, and if it's only a memory, then you're not a millennial. Many of them don't remember that, it's, except it's a memory in a history book for them. More entrepreneurial, like millennials, they are very entrepreneurial in their thinking. Uh, more fiscally conservative as a result of the 2008 recession, and more optimistic than millennials as well, because when they were in high school, they weren't even in high school when the recession hit, so after that, there's a lot of jobs when they're out there, so they're a little more optimistic than the millennials are. Millennials have a boatload of debt because of school and had a hard time finding jobs right at first, and they had to get jobs that they, weren't, they were overqualified for. Uh, so more, more optimistic in that sense. By the way, this group is open to faith. They're open to faith. Now, I've had people say to me, aren't all the generations the same? Come on now. Uh, I had a guy in New Mexico say that to me at a conference. Aren't all the generations the same? I said, like any, talk like an economist. I said, well, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, no. Just like a good economist would do. Uh, they're the same in the sense that, yes, all youth look, for, they have that experimental lifestyle. They all tend to push the boundaries. They all test the status quo. In that sense, they're the same. Here's the big difference. Millennials are the first generation that has not needed to have an authority figure to access information. First one. That changes the way you teach them. That changes the way you uh, communicate with them. It's the first generation that has not had to have an authority figure to access information. We had the Encyclopedia Britannica and the Book of Knowledge in our house. Got it new every time it came out. But, but by the time we got it, it was three years out of date. Today they have instant stuff and tons of it. Uh, and so this is a big, big, important thing. Other generations, yes, we filter our experiences through technology. But the younger generations, their experiences, expectations, what they think of the world is shaped through technology. This is an interesting thing. Uh, some of you probably read the book by Thomas Friedman called The World is Flat, A Brief History of the 21st Century. He's an uh, opinion writer for the Times. Uh, when that book first came out in 2004, if you look at the index, you will not find Facebook in the index. Why? It didn't exist. Twitter was a sound. The cloud was in the sky. 4G was a parking spot. LinkedIn was a prison. Applications are what you sent to college. And for most people, Skype was a typo. That's how fast things have changed over the past few years. So let's look at maturation theory. I'm going to give you two theories here. Uh, and basically, I hope this will help you understand how generations are formed. The first theory is called maturation theory. And how does, how does age affect development? That's the point of this one. How does age affect development? 
And the basic question that we have here is this, basic assumption. People change and mature and develop their, their values and attitudes and preferences as a function of age. Now, that makes sense. It's partly true. It's partly true, but not all true. That they change, mature, develop their values, attitudes, and preferences as a function of age. Maturation theory says basically this. Development expectations, and this is true, I buy this. When a child should take his first step, her first step, or say his first word, or when a child should know better. I have two six-year-old grandsons and a three-year-old grandson, and they say some of the most outlandish things and make up stories, and it's so cute. But if they were 12 and doing that, we would take them somewhere to have them checked and have somebody see them. So when should a child know better, in other words? So this is the developmental expectations. Here's where it gets a little sticky. The maturity expectations, when somebody should move out of their parents' house, go to college, start a career, get married, or have children. Hmm. And there are some people with this theory that say, well, they should be doing it at this age as well. I have a little cute little uh, commercial here that uh, I, I think you'll find humorous. Let's watch it. I thought I'd get to play more golf when the kids grew up. Problem is, this little guy doesn't want to grow up. Now, are these wings free range? Don't make the same mistake I made. Use Golf Now and instantly book a tee time at over 6,000 courses. It's easy to find the right tee time at the right course for the right price. Dad, the Wi-Fi is being slow. Kids, they grow up so slow. Why golf later when you can golf now? Go play. You can tell I'm a golfer, okay? All right. Five Pillars of Adulthood, this is interesting. They did this study in 1970 and they took these five pillars of adulthood. Graduate from college, getting married, buying a house, having kids, finding a career. And when they did this study in 1970, what they discovered was that 24 is now the new 18, okay? Uh, uh, women, by 1970, 77% of women had this, 66% of men by age 30 had done this in the 1970s. They did the study again in 2010, and this is what they discovered. By age 30, 33% of women had these things, and 28% of men had these things. In other words, emerging adulthood is taking place at a little different pace, and it's called emerging adulthood. By the way, and I've had people rail at this and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. We went from youth to adolescence to adults. So that's interesting. So when did you think the term adolescence came about? How about 1904, it was coined by Stanley Hall, who was the president of the American Psychiatric Association, because he saw something taking place here between youth and adult that had never, they hadn't seen before. It was called adolescence. And so Jeff Arnett coined this term, emerging adulthood. It's sort of an in-between. You're an adult, but not totally quite independent yet. So it's a term that sort of has stuck, and they're moving toward adulthood at a at a different pace, they're still doing the same things, it's just maybe a little bit slower than we did. So that, again, is maturation theory. Generational theory is the one that I think really nails this thing. Generational theory says this, how does culture and life experience affect individual development? How does it affect it? Here's the deal. Carl Mannheim, who was a German sociologist, this is his theory, but it's been developed in depth a generation is a group that shares birth years and significant life events at critical, stage, uh, critical developmental stages. 
So that's what a birth cohort is. What defines a generation then? Age, yes, is one. Social economic conditions, that's another one. During your formative years, also experiences during your formative years, your adolescent years, things like what was the technology going on during that time, what was the pop culture, uh, what were the socio-political uh, political events, the economic events going on at that time. And so uh, Martin Massey, a guy who is artificial intelligence, has this saying, he says, uh, what you are is where you were when. <clears throat> In other words, geographically where you were and what was going on during that time. Now guess what? Technology has become the new geography. And that's why millennials all around the world are very much more similar than the other generations were before them. Because that's the new geography. Life course theory, again I said this earlier, that that mindset stays with you. We have collective memories and shared sense making as we grow up. That's why generations have different outlooks than other generations. That's okay as long as we understand that about each other. Not one is more important than the other, by the way. We need to understand all the different generations. Now, why is this important? Leaders, people, parents, all of us, need to be conscious of generational differences in order to develop genuine relationships between generations. The key is relationships. And I'm here to tell you, if you have a negative label or some negative plaque on somebody, it's impossible to develop a good and deep relationship. And that's where things take place. This way, all people coming together, we can network, we can converse, we can uh, connect, we can collaborate. Let me give you just briefly here, and I'll run through these, some of the things that impacted people at various levels in these different generations. Influencing factor, formative experience. Great Depression, World War II, Pearl Harbor, the Holocaust, New Deal, the GI Bill. Formative years. How would that impact you? Boomers. The JFK and the Martin Luther King assassination, the Vietnam War, Apollo moon landing, Watergate, civil rights, feminist movement. Next generation. In the Cold War, follow the Berlin Wall, AIDS, Challenger disaster, Iranian hostages, remember that? The divorce rate tripled, single parents, latchkey kids. Millennials. First Gulf War, 9-11, Columbine, social media, tech boom, reality TV, global economy. That's just some of the formative experiences. Those create worldviews based on intrinsic values that they develop. How about technology? Radio, rotary phones, get a young person to try to use a rotary phone. We were talking about today, they don't know how to do it. What's this, you know? A rotary phone, it can do the push button, but the rotary thing, it would be almost impossible. It's almost funny to watch. Uh, cars, airplanes, fax machines, TV, touch-tone phones, VCR, Walkman, audio cassette tapes, uh, as far as technology for Gen X, internet, email, iPod, PlayStation, DVD, personal computers, call phones, uh, for millennials, iPads, tablets, Google, Facebook, Twitter, smartphones, tons of apps, tons of apps. There's hundreds being created every day. As far as family life, this is important. Nuclear family, disintegrating family, latchkey kids, blended families, education, a dream. 
So they look at a millennial and say, you are so entitled. You are so ungrateful. Because for them, it was a dream. But they need to understand that they weren't born on the same mattress. For a boomer, it's a birthright. It's my right to go to school. Gen X, it's a way to get to there, to where I want to go. It's an avenue. They're, that's a tough, Gen Xers are tough people. They're tough. Millennials, it's an incredible expense. As far as communication models, formal, mem form formal, formal memo, face-to-face, -face, phone, email, uh, text, social networking, text messaging, the whole bit. As far as work hours, long office work hours are required and wise. Long office work hours will advance my career. By the way, the boomers added one month to, to the, uh, each year to the work week. We are workaholics, like no other generation. We added one month per year to the work week from our builder parents. And they wondered why we wouldn't slow down. Gen X, office hours should allow for a balanced life. They started pushing for that. Millennials, office hours should be flexible, <clears throat> creating a blended life. By the way, <clears throat> that can happen <clears throat> and does happen. And it depends on what kind of job it is and it depends on people talking this over and how this could work. Work dress, formal. Formal towards business casual. Business casual, casual Fridays, thank you Gen Xers. Uh, and whatever feels comfortable. As far as key values, respect, authority, loyalty, tradition, discipline, conformity, accountability, stability. This is very important for the 75 and up group as you're working with them. These are extremely valuable to them. These are their values, key values. Boomers, fulfillment, indulgence, indulgence of the 80s, equality, get involved, let's make a difference. Gen X, freedom, work-life balance, self-reliant, fun, informality, skeptical to authority because they've seen it let them down. Millennials, diversity, flexibility, empowerment, service orientation, very social, extreme fun, confidence. And the last one, I'll stay if you're loyal to me. I'll stay, say boomers, if you pay me well and promote me. I'll stay, say Gen Xers, if you give me security, salary, and a fun environment. I'll stay if we have a personal relationship. Now, as far as giving, and this is not estate plan giving that I'm talking about here, but just donor giving uh, in general, this is how it really shapes out. <clears throat> the builders give 20%, 6% of the giving, boomers 43%, Gen X 20%, and millennials 11%. So they're starting to move up the ladder as well. The point being is right at the moment, the most philanthropical people, generous people are the boomers. They're not ready to do the estate giveaway yet, but there are people that need to be wooed for sure. Giving preferences, uh, much of the giving is based on personal connection for millennials. And that's important to know. Tendency is to give to multiple organizations, not just one. Technology plays a big part, supporting certain charities over others. And of course, uh, they don't necessarily donate through text, mo mobile apps, Twitter, or Facebook, which is surprising to me. Uh, but they're not swayed to give by celebrity endorsements. They're not impressed by that. It's what your cause is all about. Uh, nonprofits without strong, clean presence uh, don't allow for donations efficiently are going to miss some opportunities with this group. By the way, millennials need to really trust an organization 
before they give to it. I've heard people say that over and over again. Millennials need to trust an organization before they give to it. You want to know something? That's true of all the generations, not just millennials. All the generations need to trust the organization before they give to it. That's a similarity. Just quick here on parenting, uh, because I think this will give you some insight. Uh, nurture was emphasized more than training. Participative decision making. Uh, my kids were raised in praise-based and democratic-based homes. When I was growing up, you were told when we were going on vacation, I could ask if they told me. I was lucky if they didn't just get in the car, you'll, we'll get there. Uh, my dad had two rules. When you get in the car, I want your bladders empty, the tank's full. And we're not stopping until your tank's empty and the bladders are full. And my sister and I said, well, we're, we're bored. What do we, what do, we do? My mom said, do something, be interesting. We started picking at each other, you know. Nothing to do, no iPads, none of that stuff. They said, we're going to drop you off at the, at the Dickerson's, because I'm Bickerson's, because all you do is bicker. And I remember saying, we said, we're bored. My mom would turn around and say, no, you're not bored. You're boring. Boring people get bored. Now, create something and do it. Uh, by the way, I've used that line on a lot of people, my kids included. Uh, but it's so true. We, but I raised our kids, where do you want to go on vacation? Mark, you got to choose last year. A little input from you, Michelle, this year. Uh, overing. We overscheduled them, overanalyzed them, overprepared them, overstimulated them. And unfortunately, in some cases, overprotected them. I call these the bubble wrap kids. Overprotected. Sometimes overdirected. Those are the tiger moms and dads. Sometimes too much hand-holding. The parent is concierge. Uh, what is your name? Corey. Corey, was your bed comfortable last night? Uh, was breakfast okay yesterday morning, sweetie? Yep. Oh, what, could anything I could get you that'd be a little bit better today? Nothing. See, she's my daughter. A parent is concierge, and some parents do that, and that's not healthy. And one of the things we've discovered, kids that have not been allowed to fall are later on afraid to fly. So that's not a healthy way to raise your kids. But all this overing came the word hovering. Uh, helicopter parents, and I don't need to tell you more about that, but, but uh, it was where parents were always around, always protecting, always making sure nobody got their knees skinned, or whatever the case might be. Here's something I think we need to understand. Diversity explosion. Within the millennial, let's start with the boomers. Within the boomer generation, 25% of boomers, my group, are not Caucasian. 25%. Millennials, 40% of the millennials are not Caucasian. 40% of millennials are either African American, Hispanic, Asian or of mixed ethnic background. Gen Z, the ones coming up, 50% are not Caucasian. So we have a diversity explosion taking place. Here's some statistics. And of course, this is from William Frey, the Brookings Institute, the author of the diversity explosion. America's ethnic minorities make up 50% of the under 10 age children. By 2020, 40% of the population will be racial minorities. And over 50% under 18 will be racial minorities. By 2023, whites will total less than 50% of the population under 30. They will still be the greatest ethnic race in the population, but as a total, they will be under 50% compared to all the other ones when you add them all up together. 
great organizations, and by the way, people get, they're fearful of this. I say no, you embrace this, this is a plus. Great organizations will be driven by difference. Driven by difference, not just ethnic diversity, but gender diversity, and also more profoundly, in many cases, generational diversity. Use diversity at, to your advantage. Uh, build an exclusive environment where diversity adds to innovative thinking. The more diversity, the better our thoughts are going to be. I teach an MBA course called Leadership and Development. Uh, it's up to 30, sometimes 40% of my class are foreign born. And we have such a great time in there and the richness and the diversity that results from different learnings and different attitudes. And I even have them raise a hand when they don't get a joke because I'll tell, I love to tell jokes and they'll go, didn't make any sense, okay? That joke went right over our head. We don't have that idiom in our language. So it makes us all a lot better, a lot better. Recognizing that age, gender, and cultural diversity of your organization mirrors the diversity of your potential donors, and it does. Uh, it's a human resource issue, business issue. By the way, quickly, they're throwing their weight around. Uh, builders were a very small cohort. They were 58 million when we wrote the book in, 10, in 2010. They're much smaller now. And the boomers are a bigger group. The Gen Xers are sort of the, what I call the relational brokers. They know how to play in both sandbox boxes. They get both groups. And they are a great help to teach the younger generation about resilience if they would quit rolling their eyes every time you mention the word millennial. They go, oh, millennials, they, they have a great thing that they can do there to help. Uh, group norm theory, the larger the group, they make the rules for every generation. And I'm going to skip this one right here because I think uh, I've already hit on this enough. But what I'd like for you to see is that the key for all generations, learn to pull out the greatness of the people you work with no matter what their generation. That means you get to know them. What are their intrinsic values? It's only done when you have generational intelligence <clears throat> and understanding of the intrinsic values that really drive that cohort. Let me show you something that you've all taken in psychology, psychology 101. It's Maslow hierarchy of needs. And as you know about this, you don't go to the next level till the first level's met. So you don't go to belongingness needs until safety needs are met. You don't care about safety needs if you're hungry and you're cold. So you move right up the ladder. Now here's what I want you to see. When were millennials born? Telling my kids, don't just take any job. You know your strengths and your talents. Take the job that will fulfill you. My parents never said that. They just said, get a job. Where were the Gen Xers? The self-esteem moves. We really were worried about their self-image. Boomers. Belongingness and love needs. <clears throat> hey, we did Woodstock. We did communes, we were hippie communes. We start things, man, all the clubs. We get older and then we start art. We like to start stuff. <clears throat> That's what we do. Builders, psychological needs down here. They were born during the depression, their formative years in World War II. And what's not good is when you have people at the bottom looking up saying, well, you ungrateful people, how dare, you're so unthankful. And, but they weren't born on that mattress. And vice versa, people at the top looking down saying, what old fuddy-duddy? Come on, get with it. This is a new world. They weren't born on that mattress down there. <clears throat> One of the greatest things that Steven Spielberg ever did in making Saving Private Ryan, 
he said it was an unintended consequence, is that young people came out seeing what their uh, grandparents and great-grandparents had done, and it blew their mind. He did so much for an understanding of what it really took uh, to bring this country together. Let me give you the three Ps real quick while we work. Paycheck, <clears throat> prestige, and purpose. <clears throat> uh, these have changed. The builders and boomers, it looked like this. Why? Because, you know, purposeful work was a reward that few could attain. They found their purpose at home. Putting food on the table was the most important thing with less focus on purpose, and we get our purpose at home. <clears throat> purpose was found at home, like, like I just said. Career stability led to pre prestigious titles. The longer you stay there, the more prestigious the title becomes. Uh, the American dream was a materialistic one, placed high value on high earnings. The next group, watch how that shrunk. Millennials focus on finding purpose in their work now. Same with Gen Xers. Uh, less on prestige, because what's so prestigious about it anymore? Is, is it full of purpose? Is there something, are we doing something significant? Uh, we're not going to be here that long anyhow. By the way, a millennial, we'll, we'd call it job hopping. It, there's, there's something good and something bad about that. Uh, they're kind of like surfers. They will ride that wave if it's a good wave, and they'll stay on that wave until the wave breaks down, then they'll catch another wave. Or they're like little frogs on little, those tad ponds things. You know, you jump from one to the next. And so there are ways to keep them and engage them, and one of the ways is if they find purpose in their work. 27% are married versus 48% of the boomers at the same age, according to Gallup. And uh, rising in the rank with a single company is not nearly as prestigious as it used to be. That's not a really big deal for them. And lower salary versus meaningful work is the number one compromise when accepting a position, according to PricewaterhouseCooper. And that has nothing to do, by the way, with <clears throat> uh, paycheck or prestige. So what happens? Conclusion, while payback, pay, paycheck and prestige have lowered in priority, purpose has intensified. Top two reasons millennials will quit a job today or any organization, lack of personal growth, and feeling the company does not benefit the greater society. So it's a mistake to incentivize millennials on the past three Ps and, and, and forget what really does uh, attract them. By the way, Here's what we need to do. You can't microwave experience. But at the same time, the young people coming into our lives, our organizations, our culture, are showing us how the world is becoming. And so we need to listen and learn from them as well. <clears throat> By the way, there's nothing wrong with being a dinosaur. It's simply that the dinosaurs went extinct because they couldn't adapt to a rapidly changing environment. I'm a dinosaur. John Wooden, I interviewed him on his 96th birthday. A dinosaur, but was always adapting to a changing environment. So he wasn't extinct. He was still in demand at that age. So, again, over the next few years, we're going to have an incredible transfer of knowledge the biggest transfer of knowledge in the history of the world between the boomers and the millennials, and guess what? Also the greatest transfer of wealth. 
embracing new knowledge, entering our workforce, so we need to transfer existing knowledge from one generation to the next because the older generation has some gems that need to be passed on. At the same token, embrace new knowledge, entering the culture, and it's all done through relationships, folks. This is where it happens because tacit information is passed on through relationships. And again, with the negative labeling, that relationship doesn't happen. So we have to overcome the bias of our experiences. <clears throat> that the way we did it is a blueprint for everyone else. This excuses leaders from doing adaptive work they need to do. Leaders who cannot suspend the bias of their experience fail to ask some very important questions like, why am I bothered by this? Uh, what threats do their values represent? Uh, how will I need to change? And that's important to do. Power of perception. In the absence of information, a person may default to negative stereotypes and project onto individuals' perceived group characteristics. Now, here's the deal. We have these super computer brains, but they suffer from a capacity problem. And as a result of that, what happens is we have what takes place in the brain. It's called cognitive shortcuts. It's a heuristic. These cognitive shortcuts help us make sense of the world because we have 11 million pieces of information a day. We can only take in about 40. So we use these cognitive shortcuts. We call them biases. That's not a bad term. They can become bad. But these biases help us navigate the world without having to figure everything out. For instance, I can walk across this platform here because I know it's going to hold me up. But what if I wasn't aware of that and I had to go each time I took a step? I know it's going to work, so I have a bias that this thing is going to work. And there are basically 188 biases. We're not going to go over those, believe me. But the bias is simply a prejudice is an impact of bias, but a bias is what our brains do normally. We have these mental models, and if we're not careful, they get stale of how certain people should be or how one generation should act. One of the biases is confirmation bias, and that's where we desire to seek out information that confirms our existing beliefs. So when I see a, a boomer riding his bike across the office, I'm thinking, what a cool guy. I see a millennial do it, and I'm thinking, how disrespectful. So I kind of get information that sort of confirms my bias. I also have what we call an affinity bias. All of us do. It's the desire for sameness. I am like you means I like you. And so we like people like us. And we see the world not how it is, but how we are. And so from time to time, we need to check our mental models because they come stale. And it's no different when it comes to how we view the different generations and what they look like. I'll give you one example, because this has been a big one. Uh, a builder, feedback, no news is good news. For a boomer, uh, feedback for me is pr promotion, title, raise, a Gen Xer. Not necessary, but appreciated because we're pretty tough people. For a millennial, it's instantaneous, it's informal, and it's necessary because they've been given feedback their whole life, their whole life. And so when an older person says, hey, no news is good news, a millennial is saying that, that makes me irrelevant. I want to know what the company's doing. So when I say, what are we doing here? Well, it's your, just do your job. You're getting paid. No, they want to know, what are we doing here? They want to be a part of it. So it's be clear, be quick, be consistent in real time, all the time. So that's just one of the differences right there. Let me give you a couple more slides here I think will be interesting for you. 
one more difference that millennials have with other generations. Millennials tend to behave consistently with how they think and feel. Prior generations have more filters. And so I was talking to the provost at California State University, Long Beach one time. She's now the president of Brooklyn College in New York. And she called me in there. Dr. Gold was her name. She said, get in here. So I came in. I thought I was in trouble I had the, from my background, you know, whatever. Uh, she said, what's with these students? I said, what do you mean? Well, a student came in here and called me Karen. I said, I know where she was going with this one. I said, well, that's your name, isn't it? No, I'm Dr. Gold. Oh, okay. So why don't you sit down with it? Well, they're disrespectful. No, you need to self-differentiate, know where you end and others begin. She's not being disrespectful. She sees familiarity as a sign of respect. That's the new way we raise them. Well, this is an academic. Why don't you explain to her, look, this is an academic institution. We have to have a certain amount of academic decorum on the campus. So when you're here, call me Dr. Gold. But if you see me at Starbucks, call me Karen. I saw her two weeks later. I said, how'd that go? She said, oh, they totally understood. made total sense to them. So here she was vilifying somebody before she'd even talked to them. And the person totally got it. So they see celebrity as a sign of a lack of authenticity. It's an enemy of authenticity, and they see familiarity as a sign of respect. So there's a little difference. So they have been raised to kind of tell us what's on their mind. I remember my kids. I, I, was, I didn't speak up until I was spoken to. With my kids, I'd say, Mark, Michelle, what's going on in your lives? Uh, come, on, come on, you can tell me. Let's talk about it. It's a whole different deal, so they've been trained to say what's on their mind. And sometimes it might come off abrasive when it's really not. Generational demographics changes giving behaviors. It impacts why people give, how they give, and how often they give. Understanding this generational giving behaviors assist in effectively engaging supporters through channels they prefer to capture maximum donation to your cause. Certain people have different ways of giving, and you all know this probably better than I do. Let's just look at this very briefly, though. The builders, 26% of the giving are done by the older generation. And they prefer voice calls, direct mail. These donors are late adopters uh, to email. My mom finally got her on email. Believe, bless her heart, she's 93, but she saw the pictures I had, and she complained about how the kids, the grandkids, and great-grandkids, of all things, don't send her pictures. So I opened up my cute little iPhoto thing here and showed her about 5,000 pictures of her most loving, dearing offspring. She said, how'd you get that? I says, would you like me to help you get a, an iMac here? And we'll go do that. So we got her one, and she finally dabbled in it, and then she started sending emails, but she put one word on a page. The fonts were so big. I mean, it was real funny the way she did it. But anyway, my point being, uh, we're a little different. She prefers the face-to-face -face type stuff, uh, not the email thing. Builders are most likely to give through direct mail campaigns and donate physical goods. 88% uh, of this group give to charity. That's a big number, even though they only give 26% of the giving at this time. Boomers, on the other hand, 43% uh, of the U.S. giving is given by them. They like voice calls, check email regularly, also text message. Uh, they're slow to adopt a new technology, but they take to it quickly once they do. They pick it up. And they're most likely to make recurring donations on a monthly, quarterly, or yearly basis. 72% uh, of this group 
give to charity, they give 43%. Gen X, 20% of the US giving. Gen X prefers text messaging or voice calls. These donors regularly check email, stay up late, social media. Gen Xers are most likely to fundraise on behalf of a cause. More than other generations, they make a pledge and volunteer their time to an organization. 59% of Gen Xers are giving to charity. They give a total of 20% of it. Millennials, don't count them out. They give 11% of the US giving. Active on their phones, respond best to text messaging, social media, but rarely check personal emails or respond to voice calls. I call them, I don't even leave a voice message anymore to my kids, because I know they're not gonna respond until they pick it up. I text them. Millennials aren't, are most likely to contribute to work-sponsored initiatives, donate via mobile and watch online videos before making a gift. 84% of millennials give to charity. They only give on 11% now, but that is going to explode overnight as there's a transfer of wealth coming down this, the road. Some realities, and we'll close with a couple of these. Boomer philanthropy will grow over the next several years as the first boomers turn 70 in 2016. They're turning 73 this year. It's estimated that retirees will donate about six, a little over six and a half trillion in cash and a lot more in a little less than volunteerism in the next 10 years. Uh, 24 trillion is gonna move from boomers to younger generation from 2020 following, so there's gonna be a big transfer of money. 38 and under are becoming powerful consumers, investors, and potential givers. And here's a couple of questions. I read a book called, The Questions Are the Answer. We ask questions sometimes that aren't that good. If you can get the proper question, it begs for a good answer. So here's one question I always get. Which generation cares more about society? I get that all the time, like it's a competition. Folks, that is a mute question. They all care about society. 70% of all adults say that our actions should make a positive difference in the world. They all care about society. But a better question would be this. Who has the most power to change things? Quite frankly, the millennials are going to be the drivers of purpose, not only in the work, but going forward as well. So we need to begin to keep our eye on them as we, as we court and continue to to make uh, the relationship depth with the older generation as well. I think the conversation about generations oftentimes is backwards. We need to change it. Every generation brings something that is important. Every generation brings something that is necessary. So rather than have it backwards and look at all the differences, we need to understand those qualities, those intrinsic values, and those behaviors, and look at the things that we have together. Appreciate the characteristics of each generation and stop perpetuating stereotypes of the generations. In other words, we need to honor, the, uh, honor them where they are and look for the strengths. We, our issues are simply too big and too challenging not to work together. And when it comes to philanthropy, believe me, a lot can be moved with our strategies about philanthropy. And all the generations working together, I think, are going to really uh, make a powerful impact. Each one a little different, but we've got to quote them all all the way through and not miss them. I love this, uh, you know, Harry Potter, okay? Harkwart's School of Magic. 
Always wanted to go there. Never existed, though. It says this, where youth and experience meet, magic occurs. As I said earlier, you can't microwave experience. But the youth are showing us how the world is becoming, and they can help us revise our mental models. We've gone from blue collar to white collar to open collar to no collar, and it's so easy to focus on the collar and not see the character and the similarities. Our world is changing, and our youth are shining a light on how it's changing, and it's going to be an exciting time. Uh, it's been a lot of fun being with you today. As we've talked about this, we can have time for some questions, hopefully, in our panel session. Uh, but I want to leave you with just one last little quote here. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help the next generation. And I want to say this as well. Help them become great givers. We can do that by the way we model, by the way we go about uh, getting to know them. Succession planning has at its root word the word success, and we don't want to drop the baton. Thanks a lot. You've been wonderful, and I hope you've enjoyed that, and we've become a little more, a little more fluent in speaking the millennial, the Gen X, the Gen Z, and the boomer, and the builder language. Thanks a lot. And I know we said earlier we could save questions till the end of the day, but we've got a few minutes. We can take a few questions now. Um, so one of the things I had as I was thinking, listening to you speak earlier, Mick, um, you were talking about those qualities and characteristics of that builder generation. And you really, you, you touched on a number of characteristics, and one of them was honor. They really, really appreciate honor. Um, for, as, from a fundraising perspective, as, we're in, as these fundraisers are engaging that generation, what are some of the ways that you see that they could honor that generation? Bye. I think that's a great question. Uh, I'll give you a personal example. How do I honor my mother? I show up, I spend time with her, I listen to her, and I try to teach her, but I, I, I want to make sure that I'm cultivating a good, solid relationship with her. Uh, and I would do that with any older person. Uh, she's 93, okay? So we have a little less in common than I would with a 75-year-old. But I think it's all about time and building relationships and find out what their expectations are, what it is that they're really all about. What do they enjoy doing? What are their aspirations? Because it's so oftentimes, John Wooden said to me one time on his 96th birthday, he said, I said to him, why are you so enthusiastic about life? And he said, Mick, I said, you're 96 today. How come you're so enthusiastic? He said, Mick, the moment your past becomes more exciting than your future is the day you start to die. 96 years old, and that stuck like shrapnel in my brain. And so when I'm with older people, I look for ways to get them excited about things. To what are their aspirations? What are the things that are going to get them excited that they want to get involved in? Uh, whether it's volunteering or whatever the case might be, but don't just sit around and watch a game show or whatever. Let's get you involved in something. I'll do it with you. I'll do it with you and connect them to something of significance because that's just going to lighten their spirits like crazy. You had mentioned that millennials obviously ha incur a huge amount of debt with, in terms of their college and uh, really have that idea of money because they lived through the recession. I was wondering if you think that will impact later on their giving, because as you had mentioned, there's going to be a huge transfer of wealth, but do you think they'll hold tighter to that because of the debt that they've incurred 
and watching their, their parents go through the recession? Great question. And you know what? Uh, they are, I, I think when they start getting uh, more disposable income, they're going to be, because their hearts are already there to make a difference. They've been, that's been preached to them from day one. Make a difference, save things, make things happen. An interesting thing for me, though, is that the younger generation, Gen Z, who didn't go through that, they, they didn't understand, uh, they don't have the negativity of the jobs and all the rest, and the jobs are coming back. And by the way, just to uh, answer your question in another way too, Deloitte Touche, for instance, has 80,000 employees in this country. 50% of them are millennial, and 25% of them are in management positions. So the millennials are making some cash out there too, believe me. Most of your financial houses are, are hiring millennials. Uh, but to get back to the other part, the Gen Zers, uh, they're already, they're, they're more conservative. It's amazing. They are starting, some of them already are starting their retirement plans at a young age, where the millennials didn't do that. They just, it's gonna all happen. And, and I think they did that because they saw the recession in 2008, but they have a very optimistic view toward it. And I don't think it's gonna impact the giving. I think you're gonna see great amounts of philanthropy coming from this generation. I have two, and they're that of mindset as well. Thank you for your talk. I really appreciated your insight. I'm over here. <laughs> um, one question. Um, so a lot of organizations, at least from my point of view, are struggling with um, how to acquire younger donors, um, Gen X, millennials. I know you talked about the different ways that you would um, communicate with them once they are donors, but do you have any insight into how to acquire them now before the great transfer of wealth so that we can have them on board when they do have that? You know, that's, a, that's also a great question. Do you have any ways of going out to where they are in your organization? Uh, some kinds of things that you might be doing to uh, attract them or have some kind of event that would uh, woo them just a bit? or let them know what you're doing and why? Put that back on. Oh. Um, we have tried to create events around them, um, but a lot of them are not really interested in showing up, it seems. Um, we've had a couple successful events, but most of them will RSVP and then not actually come. Mm -hmm. um, and being that it is my generation, I would hope that I would have a little bit more insight into that, but I, I personally don't, so I just wondered if you had any yeah. research on that. You know what, one of the things I love to do is, it's, it's my mantra, is that people embrace what they help create. And so if I can get them on the planning role, helping me plan this event, what kind of event do you think we should have? Uh, and get them to work. They like to be a part of things. They want a seat at the table, but not just the kids' table. And so if I can get them, uh, I've told this to some boards that are some, you know, fairly powerful boards. You need some youth on your board here. Mm. Uh, and they will themselves attract other people from their genre as well, demographic, yeah. demographics. Sorry to hold the mic hostage, but um, <laughs> second follow-up question to that. Um, would you recommend um, different nonprofits doing like younger boards along with their already existing board, having like a younger generation board? Yeah, or even mix some of them with an older board. I know, for instance, a good friend of mine is the CEO of Special Olympics, Southern California, 
it's a who's who's board. I did a thing for their whole organization on getting younger people into the organization. Uh, they paid me, by the way. I, I, I come for pay, too, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so they, uh, uh, I suggested they get some younger people on the board, not just some of the athletes who use the services, which is also a plus, but also some younger people on the board. And they were on there with people like Fred Clare, who was the former GM of the Dodgers, and uh, you know, um, Rafer Johnson, decathlon, and then some younger people as well, and they feel a part of it. And it's amazing how that attracts other younger people to be a part of the organization. We did focus groups with them, too, with younger people, and saying, what is it that you think we need? What got you involved if you are involved, and what would it take to keep you involved? Uh, what kinds of things would you like to see done? Do you have any suggestions we want to know? And when you ask for suggestions, it's amazing how they get on board. And again, like I said, people embrace what they help create. Mm. And Thank they you don't so always much. have to have to have their way, but if they have their say, you got them. That's a great way to engage younger people. A great way to engage me, by the way. Any generation, but younger ones especially. Thank you for listening. This has been a members-only broadcast brought to you by Barnabas Foundation. Learn more about the variety of resources, tools, and training available to you by logging into the Member Center at www.barnabasfoundation.com.